And this morning, we get to welcome Nick, Pastor Nick, who's here, who's going to bring uh, uh, our message this morning coming from Acts. Nick has um, preached uh, in front of Soma before, so he's a great friend of the church. He's a church, past- he's a church planter, a pastor in uh, Columbus, Ohio. He serves on the board in the Harbor Network, a network that we're a part of that helps promote um, church planting and then also the equipping of staff for the work of the gospel. Uh, Nick serves on a non-for-profit called For Columbus, uh, which seeks to facilitate uh, the gospel movement all throughout the city of Columbus where they reside. He's married to Brittany and they have four wonderful kids. So we're really grateful, Nick, that you're here this morning um, to speak to us and uh, to give us what God has given you. So before I bring Nick up, I'm going to read the passage uh, for this morning. There should be a red Bible around you if you don't have a Bible or, or don't have access to one. Um, feel free to use that as your own. We're going to be reading in Acts 6 this morning, and that's on page 971 in that red Bible. So it's chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 8. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from the Silica in Asia. And they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, so they came, seized him, and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stopped speaking against the holy place and the law, for we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And I'm going to ask you to jump over to chapter 7, verse 54. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garment at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. After saying this, he died. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Let's welcome Nick. Good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. I um, I, I actually don't serve on the board of... Um, Harbor Network anymore, which is why Brandon's actually serving on the board this weekend and invites me to come in to preach for him. And I was kind of jealous. I'm like, okay, so you get to go do what I used to get to do, and I get to go do what you're supposed to be doing. So here we are. 
But I, but I'm really, uh, I'm really great. I kind of was happy to see there's a huge snowstorm coming over there. So it's like, well, your flights are going to be screwed up. So you're, <laughs> you might be there all week. Who knows? Um, but I, I actually am. I just, I know Brandon and Emily aren't here, um, and I can't and really embarrass them in, in front of them. But I just want to just say I'm so grateful for them. And I know some of you have a much uh, longer relationship, maybe, or, or such. Um, but I, I've, I've gotten to know them, and, and they have been just present in uh, my wife and I's life, and just such great times. And uh, they're, they're just great leaders. And in a, in a culture where leadership is kind of, you're skeptical of a lot of, like, pastors, and, like, well, who, are, who are they really? You know, are they crazy narcissists? Are they, like, uh, something that these guys are just so um, just just so wonderful to be around, such so humble and and so I'm just really thankful and it's it's really a privilege for me to come in and share um, from this story. This is a really long passage. Um, I know we skipped over a lot, um, but this is a really long passage and a really long story that I want to jump into um, of this guy named Stephen. Though Luke, he's the writer of Acts, he's the one who's writing all of this, he covers a lot of years of history throughout the whole book of Acts. I mean, he's covering a lot of things, but he actually takes a lot of time on this one story. I mean, he's covering essentially two chapters where he wants to cover this one scene, this one moment. So Luke is slowing way down, and so I'm saying that, and I want to start us there because I want to encourage you to slow down a little bit on this passage. Really slow down on this story and uh, as we go through the final hours of Stephen's life, where he, as we read, was brutally murdered for calling people to orient their lives around the person and the life of Jesus Christ. Now, maybe some of you kind of twinge at this idea, like you're uh, hearing this, you're seeing this, you're reading this, and you're just not, you just don't get it. You're not sure about it. Because statistically speaking, and I can actually say this anecdotally as well in my own life, I mean, people, people are very hesitant today to call somebody uh, a friend, a coworker, and, and spend time with them and tell them you need to follow Jesus. You, you, you can believe in Jesus. This, it's really hard for us to do this. Um, I know um, there's a study that recently came out by Barna Research that said that 47% of millennials, I imagine some of you here are millennials. I'm Gen X, so I'm better than you, but millennials, like, I know some of you are millennials. Um, and they, there's a statistic that's 47% Find of, of millennials find that actually sharing your faith is morally wrong. Telling somebody else about Jesus and wanting them to change their life and believe in Jesus is actually wrong. 47% of Christians would say that. Yet, on the other hand, we have Christianity, which one of the things that sets Christianity apart from all other religions is this call and this belief that every single Christian is actually called to be a missionary, called to be a missionary by God to tell people with words uh, about Jesus and encourage them to give up their old life 
and pick up a new life by following Jesus. It's actually part of our new identity to share this good news with conviction and a desire to see someone experience this personal conversion. And for a lot of us, this aspect of Christianity, this part of our identity as a believer, a follower of Jesus, is actually really hard for us. We don't really like it. It feels too pushy, um, and, and, and we swim in this cultural waters that's just like, hey, man, you do you. I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. I'm not going to tell you how, what to believe. I'm not going to tell you, you know, you just do you. That's kind of the way our culture and the waters that we swim in are. But then now, go back into the story. There's Stephen. In the Bible, he's at the foundation of Christianity, right? This is the beginning. This is kind of when Christianity is just exploding everywhere, right? And there's Stephen in the early church, and his passion, his zeal, his conviction is on full display. And Luke, again, the writer, he is wanting to slow down because he is really wanting us and the church forever and ever to really understand something about Stephen's life and about this story and about what's going on. I mean, his passion is on full display here, and it, it enraged so many people that they ended up killing him. So what I want to do is break this down into three parts, um, and hopefully by the end you feel like, okay, I got what was happening in this story. There's three parts to this. First is I want to look at Stephen's character and really the conflict at hand. And then secondly, we'll look at Stephen's defense. He gives a really long defense on his behalf in front of this council. And then the third thing is we're going to look at the last few minutes of his death. Let's start with his character. Many of you who, uh, many of us who really call ourselves Christians, you, you may read this story, and uh, again, if you're willing to be honest, you say, I could just never do this. I couldn't do what Stephen just did. I couldn't have that kind of boldness or courage to stand up, the guts to stand up in front of all of this opposition and tell people uh, about Jesus. And that certainly would make sense if we didn't understand really what was going on under or within Stephen's life, what possessed him, what made him have the courage to do this. And again, Luke is really wanting to communicate something. So he uses the same word multiple times, three times, in fact, um, here. He uses this word full to describe Stephen, full. He's telling us that Stephen was filled to the top with a power that's beyond this world. See, in, in our world today, we understand that if somebody does something great, or something completely terrible, there's something behind all of that. There's something in that. So if somebody does something great, they're like, man, they are just so full of luck. Right? Luck's, the one, luck's what did it, right? Luck is what gave them this push over the edge that made them more successful or gave them more opportunity. They would say they're full of luck. We can't just imagine that that person in and of themselves did something great. Or on the other end, right, somebody's a liar, and a thief, and you'd say, man, that person is full of crap, you know? Just, they, you know, it's something bad. They're, they're full of it. They're not filled, you know, it's not them in and of themselves, right? We always look at people and we say, there's, there's something 
beyond what they are capable of. There's some possession that they have. And in uh, someone in Acts, um, we, see this, uh, we see this story throughout Acts, and we see this a man who was so full of something, and Luke is trying to say what he was actually full of. Look at chapter 6, verse 3. It says he was full of spirit and wisdom. Then in verse 5 tells us that he was full of faith and Holy Spirit. And then finally in verse 8 we read that he was full of grace and power. I mean, these are big words, aren't they? If you think about just one of them individually, I mean, Holy Spirit, that's, he's filled with God. Grace, power, wisdom filled him. They filled him up as he spoke. It overflowed out of his life as he talked about Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection and the good news that people could be saved from their sins, that they could experience forgiveness and freedom and faith and grace and power in Jesus, in Jesus' name. And he's walking around and he is communicating this everywhere. And, and people are getting this, and they're, they're experiencing this overflow. I wonder, I wonder if we go back to that Barna data, I wonder if that Barna data exists because we aren't filled with God. Do we skip over the fact that we must draw upon a power, uh, a feeling that is beyond ourselves? And Usually, when it comes to talking about Jesus, we go to the mechanics, don't we? Well, here, here's what you need to say. Here's what you need to tell them. If they, if they argue you this way, you argue them that way, right? We go to the mechanics of it. Here's the best strategy. You know, your, your lunchroom conversation with a coworker. Here's how you slip it in. That kind of thing. And we, we go to the mechanics. Or maybe we just don't, we just avoid it altogether, right? We just don't even talk about it. Right, we, we, when, when, when we're having people over for dinner, our neighbors or whatever, we're, afraid, we're just like, we pray, oh, please don't let them bring up you know, religion or politics or any of that stuff, even though like, religion supposedly is important to you. Maybe we can't open our mouths and even invite somebody to church because we're afraid of some repercussions. We don't want to offend somebody. But Luke, listen, Luke... Luke here, he's telling us this story. He's not telling us to say, hey, guys, do like Stephen did. Like, do what he did, right? Here's the technique. Here's, read, memorize his speech. He's not saying that, but he's actually calling us to God, to be filled with God, to spend more time drawing upon God's power so that, we, so that we'd find our lives so full of God everywhere we went. This is Stephen's life. And it's a good life. This is who he was. This just was his presence. It just overflowed out of him. And he was experiencing this good life. And he was experiencing this power and this grace and this wisdom. And he was experiencing it because he was spending a lot of his life with Christ. You're, you, you, we spend a lot of our time, we look for wisdom in all kinds of different places. Reddit, maybe Indie Reads, you go get smart or something like that. But it's not wisdom from God. Or you're looking for stability of heart. 
Some of you are just looking for that stability of heart in a world of broken relationships and distrust, but it doesn't come from a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse, but from a full faith in Christ. Or you're looking for that power and control that Stephen had in titles and promotions. And Stephen, again, shows us that the real power is found in Christ and his lordship and actually surrendering yourself and giving yourself up for him. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news that, that Stephen is embodying. It's not just preaching about it. He's embodying this way of life. But what's fascinating is this is just the first half of the story. right? That's the first half of the story, but there's a second half. And the second half is really about the cost. The cost of living this life. The cost of this inner power that Stephen had uh, which re- produced a great conflict. If we see in verses six, or sorry, in chapter six, verses nine through ten, there was these highly educated PhD types, and 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 Luke lists them out. And Jewish readers would be like, "Ooh, wow! This was the council of council. These are the big dogs. These are the smart guys. These were the Hebrew of Hebrews, right? The the most zealous for God uh, that there could be." And there they are in this council, and they cannot stand the wisdom of Stephen. They, they cannot stand what he is saying and what he is preaching. And there was a lot of reasons, but here's one that's, that's kind of overlooked. And, and I imagine that, uh, I know, I'm sure Soma has talked about these kinds of things, but this, this is something that's overlooked. It's that Stephen is a Greek-speaking Jew. Remember, he's the Hellenistic Jew that was installed uh, as a deacon to care for widows uh, that we saw earlier. And and he was a Greek-speaking Jew, and these Hebrew-speaking Jews, these these high synagogue leaders, they had this subtle racism towards these, uh, this prejudice towards these leaders. And... uh, and so when this guy is getting up and speaking with this authority and this power, it just offends them. It just absolutely, the Sanhedrin council we read about, they just went crazy and they couldn't handle the fact that this low-level minority Hellenist, uh, Greek-speaking Jew, uh, Stephen, could, have, could even have that much wisdom. And so they created this scheme they created this gossip, skimming and gossiping, you know, is always somebody who's just so filled with fear and, and so filled with unhealth and insecurity. And of course they go and they gossip. Oh, you know, he's speaking against the temple. He, he's, speaking against, he's speaking against Moses and the law. And so they gossip. And so that is enough to bring charges against Stephen. They seize him. They bring him before the council and they're going to charge him with two things. Two things are going on. Look at verse 13 here. They charge him for speaking against the holy place, that's the temple, and against the law of Moses. The holy place and the law of Moses. Now, for us, that's like, we're we're, we're looking at them like, that's kind of weird. Those are like, those are strange things to be so enraged about. But you have to remember that Jesus himself was actually charged with the very same thing about the temple. You remember what enraged the religious establishment is when Jesus said in John 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. And they're just like, how, 
you, you, how could you talk about even destroying the temple? And they brought those same charges against Jesus before him. And so these charges are laid against Stephen. And Luke, in the middle of this, after the charge, charges are presented, Luke turns our attention, look at verse 15, to, to, Luke, or to Stephen's face. It says, his face was like the face of an angel. And it's strange that he's being charged to be against Moses when if you, if you know Exodus and you remember Moses' face glowed when he presented the law to the people, and this same thing is happening to Stephen. His face is glowing. There's something about his face that is powerful here, and this is exactly what happened to Moses. And I know for us, again, this is strange. We're like, what, what is happening? You know, is this like a touch by an angel moment, right, where there's glowing things and what, what's happening? Um, but Stephen's face shone like this to a council, to a people who would have, they would have got this, or they should have got this. They should have understand. They should have made the connection. Oh, my gosh. Look, his face is shining like Moses' face. Like, look at what's happening here. So this is a communication, a way of saying that Stephen is not against Moses. Stephen is actually for Moses, and they're on the same team. And this is God's way of saying, look, everybody, same team. They're on the same team. And it's God's way of approving Stephen. So now let's move into... Um, Stephen's lengthy discussion in chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 53. I mean, this is a long part, but I, and I would encourage you tonight, if you, if you got the energy, just to pick it back up and just go through it. I'm going to summarize parts of it because it's really important. Because Stephen is moving into giving his defense. Stephen gets the leading cue by the Sanhedrin council. They accuse him of these things, and they look at Stephen, and they say, all right, are these things so? Basically, prove it. Prove, prove that you're right somehow. Make your case. And so he starts, he starts his speech. I mean, again, I'm going to put myself in this situation. I'm going to be pretty upset. I'm going to be like, dude, you guys are accusing me. This is unjust. This is not fair. My, what about my freedoms, right? I'm going to pull my American like, freedom card out, and I'm going to be like, what about our rights? This kind of thing. But Stephen starts this with such affection and care and love when he says brothers, fathers. And he uses the word our. Our father Abraham, he says. What he is going to do before the council is he's going to go back through the whole, not the whole Old Testament, but a lot of the Old Testament and what he's going to do is tell story after story after story that this council would be very familiar with, and he's going to give them a key to help them understand that they're missing. Right? He's giving them a key to the story to help them understand the story properly. So let me start. Let me just go through this really quick. Hang with me, because I know this is mind-blowing. If you're willing to like go through it and listen, it's mind-blowing. I mean, let's start with Abraham, because that's where he goes. Verses 2 through 8, he talks about um, Abraham. Abraham's like the most well-known Jewish figure ever. And he starts here because he's addressing this accusation against the temple. They're accusing him of being against the temple. 
And he is showing that God does not actually pledge himself to a temple, but to a people. And so he goes back to Abraham and says, look at the covenant God made with Abraham. Was it with a temple? No. Was it with a, a building? No. It was with a people. That's the first key. The Sanhedrin council is missing that for some reason. And so Stephen's giving them the first key. Well, you have to remember that. And then the second one is about Joseph, verses 9 through 16. Stephen, he is going into the locations and the, 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 the geography to see how God's location and geographical boundaries are moving from Mesopotamia with, with Abraham and now to Egypt with Joseph. And he uses the word Egypt six times because he's showing that Egypt is a foreign land. It is a place that God was not there and present in their minds. And he's showing that actually God was with Joseph. God was with him the whole time. If you look at verse 9, and this is the second key, is understanding, he's trying to show them, God travels. God moves with his people. Joseph got displaced from his hometown and put into the land of Egypt, but God is with him. Third thing, let's look at, that. Let's look at Moses, verses 17 through 43. Now, this section is much longer, 26 verses. It's tracing the life and the ministry of Moses leading God's people through the wilderness, but look at verse 30. Stephen is pointing out the famous story of the burning bush um, before Moses. Maybe some of you are familiar with that. If you've seen Prince of Egypt, right, the, the burning bush is, is going, and it's not consuming the bush, and this is a powerful moment where God speaks to Moses through this burning bush. It says, I am the God of your fathers. Take off the sandal, sandals from your feet, uh, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, Stephen draws this out and tells this story to show that even in the Old Testament scriptures, God's presence manifests itself wherever God is. God's presence uh, uh, manifests itself wherever God is. His presence is greater, more holy than the inner temple, than the holy of holies. This is showing that the temple that he is being accused of being against, he is saying, I'm actually for it more than you. Because I'm not looking at a building, a space, a temporary dwelling. I am showing you and seeing that God is present wherever God is. The true temple is where God is, where the holy ground is. And that's the third key that he's giving to this council let me just pause for a second, just a reminder. These guys, again, they have a PhD, they had the Old Testament memorized. These are super smart guys. And so Stephen's kind of going through and just saying, hey, you, you missed this important part. All right, let me keep going. Uh, verses 44 through 50. I hope you're not getting bored yet because this is good. But in, in Stephen's final section in verses 44 through 50, he moves into David and Solomon and he's addressing the tabernacle, again, the temple. This is God's final home, what the people saw as his final home. And he's really careful here in his language. Um, he wanted to make sure he communicated that the temple or the Ark of the Covenant were not the literal home of God. 
And again, this is really important. This is the fourth key. It's kind of the same angle, but in a different story. Verse 48, he says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Stephen's speech has a common thread throughout it. It's powerful. It's wise. It is full of grace. It's like a master class that he is giving to the people who should be teaching the master classes. His point in walking through all of this history, to walk through all of these stories, the case that he is making is to show that God is not restricted to the temple. God is with his people, and he's not rooted in a place but a people. This is a powerful defense that would have left people just jaws dropped to the floor. Like, this is a game changer, what he is talking about. This is, actually, um, this is actually one of the things that caused the early church to just explode in growth because people had these epiphanies, these aha moments. The religious people, the Jewish people, they had these moments of like, oh my gosh, they got the key to understand all of this, the decoder ring to understand all of the Old Testament and got what God was up to. It's not Old Testament God, New Testament God. This was like, how God was operating. And so then in verse um, 51 through 53, Stephen then turns his attention to them in and of themselves, the stiff-necked people. Stephen, he's addressing the second charge. that He's not speaking against the law. He points out over and over again that there were always people along all of this whole way that would not listen to God. And then what he does is he says, and you, you're the people who won't listen to God. You're not listening to them. He turns the tables and says, you, you remember there's people against, and then you guys are against. And he says in verse 51, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. I mean, this would have been, I know for us, we're like, that's, that's weird, calling somebody an uncircumcised heart, you know? I, oh, that's weird. That's like the low, you know, weak. Come on, man. But for them, that was like cotton-headed ninny-monging, you know, like, oh, you should not have said that. I hope somebody understood. I think a few of you understood that. Um, but there's always these opposers. There's always these people who would choose the golden calf who would run after the golden calf and the gods of this world and the idols and were so quick to abandon God. They were always there throughout all of history. And Stephen is pointing out that, that they are the ones doing this now. They are those people. Even with all your PhDs and your expertise, you're just missing the key to understanding these stories and our history. I think what Stephen is saying, you, you failed the ultimate religious assignment here. You just failed it, and you're missing out. You're missing out on the power and the grace and the goodness and the, and, and the spirit. You're missing it. Before I go further, though, um, we have to see and understand that almost all of Stephen's speech was incredibly positive. I think that's important to know. Like he talks about it super positively, like he's teaching them and just trying to help them out. Right? We, we tend to be way negative. Okay, maybe I do. 
I tend to be very negative. I'm a little more pessimistic. I'm a little bit more like a, a realist, but he's really positive. I mean, like, if you go to Twitter, is it, it's not positive, right? And, the, and he's trying to take the posture of, like, helping him out, showing grace. It wasn't just a speech to try and defend. He's not there to fight his accusers. What Stephen was unpacking was exact, exactly what was igniting the heart of these new Christians. And I think, it, I think that's what we need today. I think that's just exactly what we need today. They were seeing the scriptures with the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. They were seeing the key that Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the long-promised Savior, would be the true temple, would be the true law, fulfilling the temple's hopes and the law's promises, which was ultimately, I'm coming right back around to the very beginning, to be with God. Jesus was giving us full access to be with God, to be full of God. But the Sanhedrin council would hear nothing of it. They became deaf and determined to destroy this message and its messenger, Stephen, and they proceed and just enrage and go after him to kill him. Look at verses 54 through 60. I mean, they, they were enraged out of their minds about Stephen. But Stephen is still full of grace and power and of the Holy Spirit, and he could do only one thing in that moment. What is that one thing? See Jesus. He has this picture of Jesus in the middle of the chaos, a picture of Jesus. And notice this, Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. Now, some of you might know this, but oftentimes when he's described in Hebrews and other places, he is described as sitting at the right hand of God. And Luke is saying, no, he had, he had this image in showing us that he's standing. Can you imagine God's posture? He's in the he is watching this. He is in this ready. And he is in this posture as an involved, passionate king. And he knows that he's about to take in one of his glorious, beloved sons into his arms. It's Christ's compassion before Stephen. Stephen has this vision. Just remember, Stephen is seeing this. So Stephen is looking at this. And I can imagine just his heart is just filled with so much joy. He's like, my Savior is about ready to pull me into his arms. I, I just The joy he would have felt in that moment to have this kind of vision at this point in time, but the council, they wanted to shut him up as fast as possible, push this down, no more visions, no more persuading people, because people are starting, they, they're watching this and they're hearing this, and the council does not like this, so they went berserk. They rush at him, throwing him out into the streets to be stoned, this Hellenistic Jew articulated the Old Testament with power and authority in a way that they could never attain and they could never get to. And he is testifying of a, a Christ's death and his resurrection. And the council became a mob, and what they did next was actually illegal. They, could not, they should not have done that. It was completely unjust what had happened. They didn't have the legal right to do it. And if you notice, Luke is very intentional about his writing at the end of chapter 7. And he, he, gives us, he tells us about someone in the crowd and someone who was instigating all of this, a man named Saul, who was willing to like 
who is willing to kill somebody for this wisdom, uh, we'll, we will know him later as Paul. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Greek name. But with this, Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he falls to his knees, and his last words were, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And he dies. How could one who... You have to remember who Stephen was. His job was to care for Hellenistic widows. Like, this is... This was like killing Mother Teresa. Like a man who was giving his life to caring for widows. This is not... This is is not right. This is totally not right. How could the one who was humble servant of these abandoned widows of the city be so unjustly treated that they would bash his body with rocks? And even more so, how could Stephen, with his last breath, set his face on Jesus and do what Jesus did, which was what? Forgive them. Forgive them. What in the world would compel Stephen to go through all of this? Well, let me just say it again. He was so full of another world. He was so full of heaven. He was so full of the Holy Spirit, of grace, of wisdom, of power, He was so full of God, a world that this mob rejected, a world that they couldn't hear from, a world that they hated. And I wonder, I wonder if any of us have experienced this heavenly world. There's 47% are saying, I don't even think it's right to share, then I wonder, what, what, what are we full of? You see, our world may uh, somewhat tolerate Christians. You keep to yourself. You just stay in your lane. You be a good employee and just keep your head down, then they'll tolerate you as a Christian. But when you are so full of another world that is perfectly defined by, it's not defined by, you know, being a jerk, right? Like Christians typically are defined. Like, you know, it's not being a jerk or, or being belligerent or dismissive or putting down a coworker who disagrees with you or something along those lines. It's filled with, it's, it's being defined by this, peace, grace, joy, Love, passion, conviction, happiness, freedom, rest. When that world fills you up, it will do two things. It's going to drive evil crazy. All the evil things in the world, will be, it, will, it will drive them crazy. But it will also be so salty and attractive that just like in the early church, it will just cause so much 
desire and passion for him. So I asked myself a lot this week, Lord, what do we, what do, we do with this story and this idea? The church in 2022, uh, what do we take from this story? And, and we've got COVID, we've got uh, racial injustice, and we've got a world that just says, hey, you do you, but don't, don't tell me what to do. You, you do you. In a world that has trained Christians to shut up or we're going to make fun of you, um, how do we find ourselves with this kind of conviction or with this kind of passion or just to be in this kind of world that he is in? And the answer is fill up with God. Fill ourselves with God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who gives us wisdom and faith and grace and power. Some of you spend too much time filling up on the news, on talk radio, on gossip things, on Netflix. We, we do. We spend so much of our time filling up there. So can, we, can we just end our time by fixing our hearts and our minds and our souls upon God? Jesus fulfills the law. He's the new temple where God dwells. He lived, he died, he's buried on the, and, and, and rose on the third day. The temple was destroyed and it was rebuilt. And Jesus is the key. He's the key here. When he's key to giving the disciples new life, he's the key to filling them up with himself and his kingdom. So let's go to the key and just ask him to fill us. Lord, we, we come before you and um, we, want to, we want to be filled with you not technique on how to share faith better today. Not even with all the right answers and the eloquence. Not even just the boldness. God, I don't want us to pray and go after those things in and of themselves. But I pray that even starting this morning that we would have a long pause and just ask, are we going after you? Are we being filled by you? Do we have grace, wisdom, mercy, the Holy Spirit? Are those things flowing out of us? Will we come to you now and just ask that you fill us? Lord, would we be willing this week even to move our lives just a little bit more into the space of being fueled by you and not social media. Fueled by you and not just talk radio. Fueled by you. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.